All right, we have concluded our series on Bible interpretation. Um, as you might imagine, it's been a couple of years in, in, in the making. Uh, however, I, as you might imagine also, it's, it's been very, uh, just very selective. Uh, there's lots and lots of material out there related to Bible interpretation. We sort of limited ourselves to just one or two resources. But as you can continue in your own personal study, you'll find many, many, many resources related to uh, Bible interpretation and proper hermeneutics. Uh, we gave our attention several months back as to what we might uh, start as far as, as far as a series is concerned. And um, we had a couple of options we looked at, and we may give our attention to some of those later on in, in years to come. But the topic that we settled upon as elders to present to the people of God on Wednesday nights is the study of church history. Study of church history. Um, we thought this would be a great opportunity to spend at least in the next, I was about to say the next few months, as you might have, it will be the next few years, right, on church history. We don't want to drag it out so that it's just, you know, really, really long and involved and detailed. But we do want to give some respect to church history and spend some time on it. So I'm hoping to complete the entire series in the next couple of years, in two years, and try to try to do that. And now in your head, you're thinking you're going to cover on Wednesday nights with 30 to 35 minutes a night um, church history, right? 2,000 years of church history. At 2000 plus, because we talked about when we would actually, when were, what, where were we going to start church history, right? And um, I can't remember which, I think it was Pastor Len Hand said, well, we should start in Genesis, right? Because that's where church history begins. I said, good idea, good idea, um, but we won't complete this in two years, all right? Uh, do we go back to the founding of the church when Christ was on the earth, right? In the incarnation. Um, really, if you think about it, we could go back 400 years before that, right, and take start up with the end of Malachi, right? How about those 400 years between the last of those of those prophets until John, the final prophet, right? So what we've decided to do is to start our study at the, the with the background of Rome and Israel uh, and during the day uh, and in Christ's incarnation, and we'll pick it up from there and move through these relatively, uh, rel nearly 2,000 years right, of, of church history. It's a large topic, a very large topic looming before us. Um, if you went into our church library, you'll go into our church library and you'll find there a series of histories that we have available for th the, our church family. One of those series is the anti, the anti, not anti, the anti-Nicene fathers. Right. So we're going before uh, that Nicene era, and that's a ten-volume set, right there. And all those, and those, we're talking three or four hundred pages in a volume. Right. That's a lot of material. We also have two series on the Nicene and the post-Nicene fathers. Right. We have the first series and we have the second series. Both of those series contain 14 volumes apiece. Right? So I know you're doing the math in your head. You're thinking 14, 14, 10, a lot of volumes, a lot of volumes. So you know we're just going to cover this topic with a 30,000-mile flyover. We're just not going to touch it. We can't touch everything. 
So I'm going to try to do my best to cover some of the most important things that will help us and encourage us as we study church history. Let me give you, if you want to follow along in some way, let me give you the four of the main resources that I will use. Um, the, the first of these is called 2,000 Years of Church History by Dr. Nick Needham. Nick Needham, N-E-E-D-H-A-M, Nick Needham. Uh, Dr. Needham is minister of the Inverness Reformed Baptist Church in Scotland, in Inverness, Scotland. He is a lecturer in church history at Highland Theological College in Dingwall, Scotland. And this is a five-volume set. It is self-described as somewhere in the middle between being a little too simplistic and being too academic. And so if that's a set you'd like to get, um, that's a five-volume set, we'll just that will be a, a prime resource for us. The second resource probably that I will depend on for our series is a series of church history lessons, church history lectures. It is actually called the, a survey of church history, a survey of church history. And this was done by Pastor Jeff Smith. Pastor Jeff Smith is an elder at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. He began this series on August the 12th, 2012. He completed the series on April the 28th of 2019. Now you say, well, that's, that's you know seven years. Well, that, was, that series was interrupted by some other series. So the elders of that assembly decided that they would stop that series, and then they interrupted it for another series of some kind for a while. They would return and then interrupted it again and for another series. So it, it's actually 105 lessons. Each lesson is almost an hour long. So he covered church history in, in two years, right? If you, if you do 105 lessons, about two years less, he wants a week. So that's a second resource that we'll use. A third resource that we have is the history of the Christian church. That's an eight-volume set by Philip Schaff. This is probably a classic. Everyone's probably heard of that series. Uh, we have that in our library, as a matter of fact, if you'd like to get that. Um, you'd be a ma- you'd be you might be amazed to know that you can actually get that in uh, Kindle form on Amazon. I think I have the whole, the whole thing was like two dollars. You can get it as, as an ebook, right? The eight volume set for that. So that's a good one. Philip Schaff was born in Switzerland. He was educated in Germany. He was a Protestant theologian, and most importantly for our case, he was an ecclesiastical historian. He spent most of his adult life living and teaching in the United States. He was an influencer of the German Reformed Church, Philip Schaff. And then finally, there is a fourth volume that I have that we'll be using as a a source, and that is a volume entitled History of the Christian Church. It's just one volume, but it is a very thick volume, and is by uh, George P. Fisher. Uh, George Fisher graduated from Brown University in 1847. Uh, He then studied theology at Yale Divinity School and Andover Theological Seminary. In 1854, he he was appointed professor of divinity at Yale, and then he was ordained as pastor of the college church. In 1861, he resigned both of those positions, and he became professor of ecclesiastical history, a very prolific writer of history on, on a good number of topics. So those are the four primary sources. Uh, of course, there will be others, um, and uh, we'll be examining a, a good number of things. 
Um, it's, uh, I trust, and I didn't see it, but I trust that your eyes didn't glaze over when I said church history and think, oh man, history is just boring history. No. Um, sadly enough, there is there's this unnecessary, and in my mind, very frankly, uh, a damaging disconnect between the lives and events of the past 2,000 years and the lives and events of modern Christianity. We we just have this attitude related to church history that those people were they were old it was it's antiquated they were not very intelligent and anyone who would say that they weren't very intelligent i would say how how do how can you tell me that you don't know anything about church history without telling me that you don't know church history because these were some of the most the remarkably intelligent people you read their writings and it's just uh, it baffles me to think that they would even think these people just aren't smart enough to study after. Um, and so we, we have this horrible disconnect between our lives today and the lives of the past. Um, what they're thinking about now, what's important to me now is this. They'll say, well, what's important to my life now? Not those people. My important. What's important to me now? My salvation, my sanctification, my study of the scriptures, my growth and maturity. And I hope that you are able to connect with that little personal pronoun, my. It's always about my, me. What about me? How does this affect me? How will I grow? What will I be able to do? How is this going to touch my life? Rather than how will this affect all of the church as, as it is connected. You know, we're, not a, we're not separated. We are linked together with these individuals from the past. We need to remember that Christianity, by definition, is a historical religion. It's based on historical facts. It's based on historical events. The creation of the heavens and the earth, the fall and sin of real historical people, a real historical man, a real historical woman, prophetic utterances related to the promise of a coming Messiah, the miraculous virgin birth at his incarnation, his sinless life and atoning crucifixion, his resurrection, a promised return, all of these are actual events and a prophecy of a future, actual, real, historical event, the second coming of Christ. So it is important. I, I trust that our his study of history, uh, particularly church history, will be interesting. I'm going to do my best to, to, to make it so. Um, something you can be excited about learning. I'm going to try to do my best to throw in anecdotes, stories of history that will touch us and encourage us. Trust that will happen. Um, something that we will be addressing in our study will be the progression of and the development of Christian practice and Christian theology, both of those things. Some people might think that um, we should be able to go back in the days of the apostles and Christ um, and then maybe just a, another 50 years or so after the last apostle was, uh, was, died, and then we're going to be able to see all of Christian theology in its full-orbed and complete expression. That they had all those things ironed out in the first century. Why do we have to still be worrying about these things? Well, that's just not the case. It's not the case. Theologians spent decades. They spent centuries. They spent much time ironing out and hammering out the details of what the Scripture is teaching. You'll hear people say, well, I have no theology, I have no doctrine but the Bible. Well, that's, that's silliness, right? You, you have to say, well, I, you know, I believe the Bible. 
What do you believe about them? What do you believe about it? I believe in Jesus. What do you, who is that? What do you believe about him? Who, who Was he the son of God? Was he the incarnate son of God? Is he two in, two natures in one? Or is he two... Uh, is he, you know, God and man in one person? Right? What do you believe about him? Well, theologians iron these things out for us, and, and so we have these things. Um, and so these teachings would be passed on to future generations, and they would be edified, and they would be grounded in these traditional expressions of the Christian faith. And so we have these things. We're going to be studying all kinds of things. History includes a number of items. History includes um, occurrences. Right? So when you studied history, <laughs> uh, you studied history, you studied occurrences. You studied different events that took place, things that happened, the establishment of the Ottoman Empire. Right? You all remember the exact years that all that took place, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, the Norman Invasion. Was an occurrence, was an event in in history. Uh, Columbus's famous trip in 1492. We all remember some of the stories of that. The establishment of the American colonies. Right? These are events in history. Right? All of these are occurrences in history. Well, there are various dates and occurrences related to church history as well. Right? Not just generically history, but church history. We study the, the fall of Jerusalem. We'll study the, the rise of the papacy. When did that happen? When did that occur? Right? Uh, the council that took place there in Nicaea. Right? We'll look at that. The various translation efforts. We'll look at the, uh, the ecumenical councils. These are events. These are uh, occurrences that took place in history. And we'll study all of those. History includes various objects. Right? When you studied history, you studied about various objects. You learned about the Rosetta Stone. You learned about the Magna Carta. You learned about these things. You learned about the Saturn V rocket and how important that was to our, our space exploration. Uh, you learned about the Watergate tapes. Right? You remember the, those objects. Right? You remember those things. Uh, we'll, the same thing is in church history. We'll study about various objects in church history. Mostly we'll be, we'll be talking about particular Bibles Bible translations, the Gutenberg Bible, how important that was. These various objects in church history. History includes the study of people. Right? So in history, we studied various people. We studied about Hammurabi and his law code. We studied about Artaxerxes and his influence. Alexander the Great, Constantine, Henry VIII, Karl Marx. These are all individuals in, church, in, in, in secular history that we studied. We'll be learning about various people related to church history. We'll study people like, we'll hear the name Origen. We'll know that name. Uh, we'll study about Constantine. Uh, we'll study um, Augustine. We'll study about Erasmus, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. All people influential and helpful to us in our study of church history. We study about particular locations. Alexandria, the Rubicon, Jamestown. Little Bighorn, Gettysburg. These are all places that are important to us in history. The same thing we'll study in church history. We'll study about Bethlehem, Bethany, uh, the Garden of Olives, Rome, Geneva, Princeton, various places that are influential and important to us in church history. Also, the study of history includes dates. It, occur it includes occurrences, objects, people, particular locations, 
and dates as well. Dates in our mind, July 4th, 1776. It's an important date for us. December the 6th, 1941, an important date in our minds. Um, June 7th, 1944, important dates. You'll say the same thing in church history. Uh, 586 B.C., 70 A.D., 325 A.D., 1415, 1517, 1611, important years in church history. And we'll study all of those. But we're also going to be studying various theological developments throughout those years as well. Um, We believe that the study of church history is a very worthwhile exercise. It is certainly a topic that's well discussed in reform circles. I just did a quick survey. I went online several months ago, well, a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, and just went to a, a site called monergism.com. It's a, a faithful site for study in scriptures, monergism.com. And I just typed in church history. right? And I got 371 responses to that. 371 various sets, articles, things you can read, PDF downloads, audibles that you can research, research from, from past generations to contemporary people. Uh, people such as uh, B.K. Kuyper, Alfred Edersheim, Michael Haken, contemporary, Philip Schaff, whom I mentioned earlier, Lorraine Bettner, Robert Godfrey, Louis Burkhoff, uh, some, and a lot of these names you all know. These are solid names that you've heard. All on church history. So it, it is a topic that is well discussed among reform circles. Um, obviously, church history is important, and we want to approach it as something important, and the way we approach it is important as well. Um, Pastor Jeff Smith, in his first introduction to church history, relates about three different ways you can approach church history. I'm not going to get into all of those. But I will say this is what this is the way you really should approach church history is this. The study of church history is done through inquiry and investigation, but also by properly and righteously interpreting the facts that are uncovered related to church history. Sadly... Um, the winners of any war or issue, they get to be the ones that write the history. Right? And so then you, you get a skewed version of what that history really is. People who are not mindful of the fact that there is a God who is in sovereign control, he is in perfect, omnipotent, sovereign control of all events in history, and all events in history are moving in a direction he designs, they're not going to interpret history correctly. And so it is our job as Christians looking at this history to interpret it properly. We have to approach the study of history in general, but in church history in particular, with the understanding that God is creator and that he is the sovereign behind all activities in history. People are sinful, they are depraved beings, and they are in need of God's merciful intervening grace in redemption. And so we see this these links in history as the hand of God moving in our lives. The study of church history is important for many reasons. I'm going to just touch on four main reasons why why church history is so important for us. Number one, church history should be for us a very powerful, encouraging, and motivating influence in our lives. So we study church history. It should motivate us. It should influence us. Hopefully, when we're studying church history, our hearts and our minds will be stirred on to godliness. As we look at those people, as we see those events, 
as we trace the hand of God throughout that history. It should motivate us. Uh, an example is a very well-known historical event of the martyrdom of Hugh Latimer and Rick Nicholas Ridley in England. I don't know if you know that name. You probably know that history. Back during the reign of, uh, uh, I think it was Edward VI, when the Protestants were allowed more freedom, when came the succession of Mary, we could refer to her as Bloody Mary, a lot of these people, they either had to flee for their lives and find seclusion somewhere else, they would either, or they would recant of their teachings and their beliefs, or they would be martyred. And such was the case with Hugh Latimer, the older gentleman, not by a lot of years, but the older gentleman, and then Nicholas Ridley, uh, being burned at the stake together in England in 1555. Um, it is told by the historians that uh, the crowd would had heard Latimer's words to Ridley. And the assumption is that Ridley was faltering, that Ridley was uh, fearful, of course, at, the, at this death. But the, the elder Latimer was heard to say, or at least the historians say, and he was heard to yell out, play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And that ought to be something that would encourage us. I, uh, whether or not this was an accurate accounting uh, or whether or not Latimer said anything at all, uh, the accounting of these individuals and the history of these individuals giving their lives up for the church, uh, for Christ, uh, ought to inspire us. It ought to be a motivating force in us. Uh, that we too would be granted that kind of faith and that kind of boldness uh, if such a day of martyrdom should ever come to us uh, or just in our daily living. Um, many of us are, are just just not as bold as we could be right, in, our, in our faith. Uh, a second reason that the study of church history is so very important is this. It is a useful tool in helping us understand the present situation and condition of the church. We ask these questions. What were the practices of worship in the church in the past? And we ask, well, what should our worship look like? Well, what did it look like earlier? What, did, what was their practice? Uh, what are some of the doctrinal issues that were ironed out by the church in the past? We have these theological issues we deal with today. Maybe a new face, a new condition because of our culture, but... We still face these same theology. How did they deal with it? How did they iron this out? What did it look like? Right. And so we have that. In all likelihood, folks, we are not the first to have to answer many of the questions that are asked by people in our contemporary situation. We're not the first ones to go through this. Others did it too. And let's let's build on, on, on their work, right? Uh, number three, a third reason church history is important. Church history is a link between the past facts and events related to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the present ministry of that same gospel. So as I said earlier, it's a link. We're not disconnected from those of our ancestors in the past. A fourth reason that church history is so very important is fourth and final reason. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. These are, these are four, and I borrow these from Pastor Smith. Church history can act as a guide to assist us in addressing many of the pitfalls that we face in the church today. Pitfalls, controversies, and whatnot. 
one very important aspect of church history is that it will certainly guide us on a straight path so that we don't veer off into doctrinal errors. We say, well, I have a new teaching. We have a new path. Well, no, we don't. Follow those straight paths from the, from the past. I want to conclude tonight um, with just an historical anecdote. I've given you some of the uh, things that we'll study, names, people, places, dates. I've given you four reasons that study of church history is important for us. And I want to conclude with just an anecdote. It's a story from church history. And um, I want to show you something from this that just as one small thing uh, to see how we are all kind of connected, right? how these things bind us all together. And I hope you'll appreciate the hand of God in providentially controlling the events of history. Because I think that as we kind of see this one story from history, this one anecdote, that you'll see you know, God's hand moving in one group, one God's, God's hand moving in a different group, and how it affects us even to this very day. In the year 2023, I want to begin with the British and Foreign Bible Society. The British Foreign and Bible Society uh, has a collection of rare Bibles contained at Cambridge University in England. That's what someone has said is the largest collection of rare Bibles in the world. They have 40,000 rare Bibles in that collection, and it's all contained by the British and Foreign Bible Society. Uh, I have a friend who went to England, I can't remember if it was early or late spring or early summer, but he went to this library and has pictures of the various just beautiful saving uh, of these Bibles that, that he has uh, in, in his collection. And this collection, is, it was just remarkable. The British and Foreign Bible Society was founded in 1804. The library contains the Bible of a girl named Mary Jones. Before I tell the story, anybody know that name, Mary Jones from from Scotland, uh, from from Wales? Good, good. Um, it's it's a well-known story. I was I was fearful that oh I've heard that story. It's it's a great inspiring story. Uh, But the Bible, the the collection at Cambridge of the British and Foreign Bible Society has that Bible, that original Bible, belonged to Mary Jones. Let me tell you a little bit about that Bible and Mary and why they have it in this 40,000 volume collection of plus rare Bibles. She bought that Bible when she was 16. She bought it in the year 1800. And, And if you open up, you can see a picture. My friend showed me a picture of the inside of it, and it's got her her name. This Bible belongs to Mary Jones, bought in her 16th year in the year 1800. Okay. She was raised in a very poor family. Uh, the biographers talk about her poverty and her impoverishment is uh, just in, in great detail. Just she had, had they just had nothing. The farming community, uh, late 1700s, mom and dad very poor, very very indigent home is where she was raised. Though the family was materially poor, they were very rich spiritually. A very deep spiritual richness to that family. Uh, they were they were told that they were very careful about the, where they wanted to attend their church services. There was a local chapel nearby, 
but it was not an orthodox church. It was not teaching straight doctrine. And so they, instead of going to that nearby chapel, went on further and would walk the further distance to go to a church where they would hear the clear teaching of the scriptures. So that's Mary's heritage with her family. As you might imagine, as a young child, she hearing the Bible there in Wales, North, I'm not exactly sure where, I think she was born in Wales, I'm not sure where, I think it's north, the north part of Wales. She wanted a Bible she could read in her own language. It wasn't available. She wanted a Welsh Bible. But Welsh Bibles were very rare, and Welsh Bibles were very expensive. But she wanted one. And so when she was about 10, she started doing odd jobs. And she would do some sewing for someone. She would do yard work for someone. She would do cleaning for someone. Somewhere in the neighborhood would give her just a few, whatever, coins, pennies, I say in English, to do the job. After scraping and scraping and saving and putting it together, as you imagine this poor family, after six years, she was able to scrape together enough money to buy a Welsh Bible printed in her, in her language she could read. She heard that there was a man who lived in a little town called Bala and that he had Bibles for sale. He lived approximately 26 miles. We're not exactly sure how far. Historians and her, her biographers, it's hard to know because we don't know exactly what path she took to get there. There are people who've studied this and they're thinking most likely this is the route she probably would have taken in order to get to Bala from her from her city. She would have probably left early in the morning, 20-some, 26-mile journey, early evening. She probably arrived to, to get there as she looks down at the city of, of Bala. The gentleman who had the Bibles for sale was a Reverend Thomas Charles. He had these Bibles for sale. And it's here that the history gets just a little hazy. Uh, historians aren't exactly clear as to whether or not he actually had a Bible for sale. Some say, yes, he had a Bible to sell her. Some say that she got there and he did not have any Bibles to sell her. But that he heard of her story and that she had walked so many miles to get there and that she was so poor and she scraped together all this money to buy this Bible, it, it just touched his heart. And he had another Bible that he was holding for someone and sold her that Bible hoping he would get another Bible for the person he was holding it for. We don't know. We don't know the story. But he had. she walked away back home the next day with a Bible that she paid for after scraping together her pennies for six years to buy. Okay. Thomas Charles was so moved by this young girl's story that he began contemplating how he might be able to provide more Bibles to other people, particularly Welsh Bibles for people like Mary. And other historians say that Mary wasn't the only, but there were other girls that would come to Charles and try to find Bibles and get Bibles. So he wanted to provide Bibles for these people in their languages and not just the Welsh, but other people. So several years later, he and others, including William Wilberforce, founded a Bible society. And it was, in fact, the British and Foreign Bible Society. So that society began, if not wholly, but at least in large part, due to the diligence of this one girl to save her money, to walk this distance, buy this Bible, and cherish it. So much so that it's now saved in a collection of rare Bibles. 
Um, of course, the Bible Society has translated the Bible into many, many languages. I don't know how many. We would wish that the British and Foreign Bible Society were stronger uh, theologically. Sadly, it is not, but we are glad it is still in existence today. Uh, they still give out Bibles. They still have Bibles for people in their languages all over the world. Um, what's in, it's inspiring to us to consider how God would use the life of this young girl to prompt a man to begin a Bible society like that British Foreign Bible Society. But the history goes even a little further. The society sought to be ecumenical and non-sectarian. And because of that, during the 1820s, there was a series of controversies that took place. One of them was the inclusion of the Apocrypha in their translations. Would they or would they not include that? And they did, and people let, they split people split off from the society. Uh, another controversy was that they would not open their meetings in prayer. And so people were astonished at that. A Bible society of all places, not open because it wanted to be non-sectarian um, and ecumenical. They didn't want to offend anyone, I suppose. So they didn't open. So they lost people on that one. A third controversy was the inclusion of Unitarians holding significant offices in the society, and that was sort of the last straw for some men. And so about 2,000 people split off from the British and Foreign Bible Society. And they founded another Bible society. They founded the Trinitarian Bible Society. All right, now that name should ring a bell to you. All right, that name should ring a bell. The society itself states, and this is from their writings of the Trinitarian Bible Society. This is what they say. It is, quote, to promote the glory of God and the salvation of men by circulating both at home and abroad and in complete dependence on the divine blessing the Holy Scriptures, which are given by inspiration of God and are able to make men wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, unquote. So the name Trinitarian Bible Society should ring a bell to you because we have been supporting that ministry over these past several years in, in our missions giving and our missions work. So again, just a very short anecdotal story about a, a little, that links us to the past, as it were, that this young girl, her dedication, her devotion, inspired others to form a society. Sadly, due to controversies, another society split from that, which is a society we today support in the translation of Bibles all over the world. So again, I, I hope you can see um, all of this as a link between the past and the present, that it is a guide It'll assist us in pitfalls and controversies as we study the past. It's uh, powerful. It's an encouraging motivation. And I, above all, hope you can see the hand of God in all of that, in all of that work. All right. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for the privilege of giving our attention to church history. And I pray that we have already been motivated. We've been encouraged and inspired as we consider these few brief words of introduction. Please bless in our time of prayer to follow. We commit ourselves to you in Christ's name in this regard. Amen.